When you turn to the Psalms, you're turning to the Old Testament hymn book. This is poetry. This This is the inspired hymn book of the Old Testament. And you're going to look at a song this morning that has four stanzas. And in each stanza, there is a different voice. So before we read it, I want you to be able to look at this, and I want you to be able to hear the different voices that are speaking. Psalm 2, we'll read this, and then we'll pray. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Okay, the second stanza. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Third stanza, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The fourth and final stanza. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is a disturbing song. It's not something we're used to singing. We're going to look at this. I mean, several questions should already be rushing to our mind. Who is the King? Who is the Anointed? Who is the Son? And Psalm 2 is just going to unfold for us in a glorious display of who this person is. And it demands a response. That's what Psalm 2, this hymn, this song, this beautiful piece of poetry does. It leans in and presses in on us and demands a response. Psalm 2 begins with an incredible question. Now, remember Psalm 1. Psalm 1, two paths, right? The righteous and the wicked. Jesus sort of reinforced that in Matthew 7. Broad is the way that leads where? To destruction. Easy to get on that path. Easy to stay on that path. But narrow is the way that leads to life. This really is Jesus teaching Psalm 1. Two paths. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the ungodly, the way the wicked will perish. Psalm 2 really is kind of sort of seamlessly woven into Psalm 1. It's the cosmic confrontation that encourages the right response to Psalm 1. And so it begins with a question. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
This is a question that unveils a dream the world has always wished for. You know, the world has a dream. The world wants to live life without God. So the question for us this morning is, on which path or on which side do we find ourselves? Are we raging with the nations? Oh, you can be religious and rage. You can, you can shake your fist up at God and rage. Or have you bowed in humble, joyful submission to a king who already reigns? So the psalmist asks, why do the nations rage? You know, what are they raging about? Well, the very whisper of Satan to Eve in Genesis 3 Listen to this again. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. It's the disregard for human life and the saturation of violence in Genesis 6 before God judges the people with a flood. They want life without God. It's the futility of building a tower to heaven in the attempt to make a name for man. Genesis 11. It's the rejection of God in Romans 1 where, where Paul writes, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Rather, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the nations today in 2016 continue to rage against God because they want to live life without Him. You know, Psalm 2 provides a theological perspective for interpreting world events. What's going on in Turkey? What's going on in Syria? What's going on in Iraq? What's going on in New York City? What's going on in Washington? What's going on in Cleveland tomorrow night? And nations continue to rage against God. The unholy confederacy, if you look at verse 2, you have kings, you have rulers, you have peoples. Verse 1, you have nations. And the psalmist is asking, why are they even attempting this? Why are they even making this weak, puny alliance against God? Because the psalmist has a view of God that we need. This is the almighty, uncontested creator of the earth who has already chosen a king. Now, we know something that David doesn't know. Now, if you look at the top of your psalm, it does not say it's a psalm of David. But the writers in Acts attribute this psalm to David. And we know something of this psalm that David could not have known. Though he tried to look into it clearly, he wouldn't have known this. But I'm going to have you turn over to Acts 4 with me. Hold your place in Psalm 2 and turn over to Acts 4. Because the early Christians who were being persecuted saw a fulfillment of Psalm 2 in a specific historical event. In Acts 4, the young church is suffering persecution and they pray to God. Look at Acts 4, verse 24. 
They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? See, they acknowledge God as creator. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now notice what they quote in their prayer. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Verse 26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were, past tense, gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. What is it they're quoting in their prayer? Psalm 2. Now, in the next two verses, they connect with that quotation of Psalm 2, the fulfillment. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, there's a king, and Pontius Pilate, there's a ruler, along with the Gentiles, those are the nations, and the peoples of Israel, those are the peoples. These are all words out of Psalm 2, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So let me ask you, when Jesus was crucified, who's in control? What does Acts 4 say? God is in control. God designed this for a specific purpose. The Gentiles and the Jews came together. They rejected, arrested, mocked, tortured, bruised, beat, crushed, and crucified God's anointed king. And he died. And it seems hopeless except for one word. Go back to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in... What's the next word? In vain. And you know, it's not just political powers. It's not just Herod. It's not just Pontius Pilate. But it's commercial, intellectual, cultural, corporate, religious, educational... And every interest throughout the world that resents and resists God's reign. But they resist, I want you to note this, Psalm 2 verse 1, they do it in vain. It's useless. And look at the goal of their rebellion. Look at verse 3. This is the goal of them resisting God. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the goal of their rebellion is, note this word, lordship. They want to be God not God. How does God respond? Well, look at the next stanza. Look at verse 4. Okay, so the nations speak. Verses 1 to 3, now God speaks. Look at verse 4. Because this is, this is the eternal perspective and response of these hollow, puny, anti-God alliances. Look at verse 4. And it's going to, by the way, I'm going to warn you, this is going to be a side to God that we're not used to hearing. There's going to be something that should be a little uncomfortable about what we're about to read. And we need to be uncomfortable with it. Grace has edges. Grace demands responsibility. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, what's his response? He laughs. But this is not funny. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You know, few people who blatantly reject God actually think of God as mocking them. I was trying to think of a parallel, trying to illustrate this, and the only thing on a human level, remember all illustrations break down at some point, because you're trying to illustrate something on a very human level in comparison to God. But one of the closest comparisons came when we were learning jujitsu in Zambia by a seventh Dan a Zambian black belt who studied in Japan. And I remember we went in, we were all excited, and we had learned like two moves. And we thought we were tough and street ready. You know, we went from a white belt, which means you know nothing, to a yellow belt, which only means you can fall safely most of the time. Okay, so if you walk out onto the mat in the dojo and you are sporting yellow, all you're saying is you can throw me and I shouldn't get hurt that bad. That's it. And you have a seventh Dan black belt who's not only black, but he's seven black belts up. He's moving towards his ultimate white belt, which means you you kind of reach that zenith and you start all over again. And it's almost like these nations have gathered together in their yellow belts to fight a master sensei. I remember one time my sensei called me out on the mat, never a joyous invitation, And he wore me out simply by leaning on me. And sometimes he would, (laughs) not mocking me, but so I would try to do one of my leg moves. And he'd just step forward and block it. And then I'd try to throw him. And I wore myself out because it was like trying to throw a building. And I couldn't get him up over. I couldn't get him to the point of breaking his balance. He didn't throw... One punch, he didn't have to throw me. I simply fell to the ground exhausted. That's what he did. He just blocked. He blocked. He stepped his legs. He blocked. And really, that's kind of a picture of what's going on here. The nations have made this unholy confederacy, and they said, we're going to cast off your restraint. And he simply wears them down, and he laughs. Basically, God is saying this. You may conspire and rage and plot all you want, but know this, I have already decided who will rule. And it's my anointed. He is a king. He is my son. And it's not open for debate, nor is it open for contest. I want to give you a fearful glimpse of this in 2 Thessalonians. Don't turn there, just listen to this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5-10. to 10. Jesus 
in flaming fire? Taking vengeance? Well, that's a lot different than the flip-flop Jesus walking on the beach of Galilee. No, it really isn't. We need to hold in tension a proper counterbalance between the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. The issue is primarily one of government and reign, and God has already chosen His government, and you know the identity of the King. We have been so well-versed in America and in American evangelicalism that we already know the King. We read these terms, anointed. Well, that means Messiah, and the Greek equivalent Christos is Christ. We know who this is. We know what begotten means. It means to father or to bring to life. And that happened at the resurrection. His only begotten son, John 3.16. So we know the identity of this king, but this is going to make sense when we read a passage like Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. See, this king had to become human. To us a son is given. But here's the issue. The issue is one of lordship and reign and government. And so Isaiah goes on and says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And now in the third stanza, that king speaks. I want you to look at this. Look at verse 7. We are invited to listen to a conversation between father and son. And now the son speaks. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today... I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So who's the anointed? Okay, note six striking statements from this. Verse 7, He is the Father's Son. Verse 7, He is the Father's begotten. Verse 8, he will inherit the nations. Verse 8, he will possess the earth. Verse 9, if necessary, he will break his possession of the nations with a rod of iron. If the nations refuse to submit, he will dash them to pieces. If necessary, verse 9, he will dash his possession of the nations in pieces like a clay pot. Psalm 2 is quoted seven times in the New Testament. And what becomes very important is that the identity of the King, the Son, the Anointed, the Begotten, is not left open to debate. In the New Testament, in each, in all seven references, it clearly references Jesus Christ. And so you're going to have to reconcile what you just read, this rod of iron and this dashing to pieces and this dashing of his inheritance, which is the nations. The nations are his. Oh no, for a little time, there's the prince and the power of the air. 
and the ruler of this world, the God of this world. And he came in serpent-like fashion and offered the kingdoms. Do you remember this in Matthew chapter 4? And he, he offers these kingdoms to Jesus. And in some way he took him and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world at that time. Rome and maybe Babylon and Egypt. And all Jesus had to do was what? Bow down and worship who? Satan. Very subtle. Here's what Satan was offering. Oh, I'll give you the nations. All you have to do is worship me. I'll give you the nations and you don't have to go to the cross and be crucified for it. Jesus understood the will of the Father. And Jesus still moved towards a certain death because he knew that this must happen. This psalm is quoted two times in Acts. We already looked at Acts 4, where they saw the fulfillment of that is when Herod and Pontius Pilate gathered together against Jesus Christ. It's quoted two times in Hebrews, and it's quoted three times in Revelation. Let me read one of those in Revelation. Revelation 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You have a king who was born of a woman who was destined to rule the nations, who was the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And it becomes very interesting when you understand not just the earthly view of what's happening, but an eternal view that when Pilate talks to Jesus in John 18, Pilate says to Jesus, so you are a king? You remember this? So you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now put yourself in the position of the nations for a second. What is the worst thing you could do to a ruler? What's the worst thing you could do to a king to depose of him? Jesus actually tells a parable, and he, he has this vineyard, right? And he goes to collect from the vineyard, and he sends some of his servants, and they kill the servants. Do you remember this? And finally, he sends his own son, and he says, they won't, they'll listen to my son. And they didn't. They killed the son, too. Because they thought that if we kill the son, then we'll get to own the vineyard. The inheritance will be ours. And Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those wicked servants? What's the worst thing Pilate and Herod could have done to a perceived king? So you're a king? Well, we know how to take care of that. You kill him. Right? But what happens when that king comes back to life? Uh-oh. Right? I mean, think about that. You just exterminated the king, the rightful heir to the throne of David, God's anointed, God's son, who is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. You kill him, three days later, he's back. I want to give you a glimpse. We're going to fast forward just a little bit, and I want you to listen to this again. I want, I want you to hear this. Revelation 11. This is, this is an already not yet passage. This is still future to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, His anointed. And He shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. Verse 18. This is Revelation chapter 11. The nations raged, but Your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding Your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear Your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. You see, the king is alive. So, you have the 24-hour elders bowing. You have the nations raging. Let me give you another picture, a scriptural picture, a scriptural portrait of the culmination of all world history. And again, we're going to be in Revelation. There's a rider on a white horse who's going to strike down the nations in God's wrath. Let me ask you a question before I read this. Who's on the horse? Let me just read Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is, all capitals, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on His robe and on His thigh. He has a name written. This is who He is. King of kings and Lord of lords. So the very one who held that mocking reed that they ended up taking and hitting Him on the head, saliva going down His face as they spat on Him and beat Him, the very one who hold that as a snapshot of the nations raging against God and His anointed, will hold a rod of iron and rule. I told you this is an uncomfortable picture we're not used to hearing. You know, God will save the worst of sinners. There is no sinner outside of the grasp of God. But He cannot save an unsurrendered insurgent. Just this morning, it said in the failed attempt of the the military coup in Turkey that 6,000 military soldiers have been taken as prisoner. Again, another human level, recent illustration. Have you laid down your weapons of insurgency against the king? Remember, God can save the worst of sinners. If you're sitting here wondering, can God save me? I mean, look what I did. Look what I did. I can never forgive myself. I should have never done that. God can save you. He can save the worst of sinners. But He cannot save an unsurrendered insurgent who continues to rage against Him. 
And so it is said of Jesus in Psalm 2, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now we're going to look at the final stanza. Go back to Psalm 2 and look at verse 10. Because here we have both warning and encouragement. Here the Spirit speaks to the psalmist and says, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings. I love this, right? It's the kings and the nations who are raging, and now this appeal, this gracious appeal goes out even to them. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Two responses. First, respond to the facts. Wisdom is to order your life according to the facts. Wisdom on Monday morning is to start living in light of this revelation. We, we simply align our life to the facts of God's Word. Here are the facts of Psalm 2. There is a king. This is a fact. God will not be dethroned. This is a fact. God will display His fierce fury of wrath. Whether you like that or not, that's a fact. God has chosen His Son as King. The Son can be angry. People will perish in the way. The Son's wrath can be quickly kindled from a spark to a raging and devouring fire. This is a fact. And this is a fact too. Are you ready? Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. In Christ one of the beautiful phrases that is used throughout the New Testament. In Christ. The second response is respond to the Lord and to His Son. Here's how you respond. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That's that bowing kiss of a subject to a king indicating reverence, loyalty, and love. Here's an appeal to be wise and be warned. Really, we would call it this. Repent and believe. That's what Jesus came preaching. Often we quote Mark 1.15 and we say repent and believe. Let me read you the full context. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the good news. Okay, what's the good news? This is Jesus preaching. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? God's anointed king is now on the earth. Be warned. Be wise. Jesus says, this is the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, then what's our response? Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus says. C.S. Lewis, I think, captures this picture very well in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. When the children go into the wardrobe and they end up going into this kind of world... Uh, they hear about this Aslan king. Of course, they're in trouble by the witch, and they hear about this lion king. And I love when they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who describes Aslan the lion to them. Susan, the older child, asks, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, That you will, dearie. And no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Lucy says, then he isn't safe? 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Rejoice with trembling. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this morning, is Christ your king? Have you laid down your weapons of insurgency and bowed the knee to him, Lord, King, and Savior? Philippians 2.8 says this, In Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that seemed like defeat. However, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess that one day. The difference is, which path are you on? Are you saved? Are you safe? Have you found refuge in Him? And do you do that on this side of eternity and you are called a saint, forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ? Or will you do that on the other side of judgment where you will confess this anyway, but you are an insurgent prepared to be crushed by a rod of iron who will perish in the way? This is Psalm 2. This is the New Testament. This is what is happening now and what will happen 